Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Les Enlumineurs. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our very first mini-episode. I'm Kristen Racanello, manager of the Les Lumineers New York Gallery and producer of this podcast. These short episodes are intended as brief informational guides that will introduce you to a range of important topics concerning medieval manuscripts and related arts. Today we'll be focusing on manuscript production in a two-part episode. These episodes will explore some of the most basic critical questions any budding medievalist should ask, such as, how did manuscript books come to be? What is a manuscript? What are the texts in these books written on? And what are the colors made from? Or the all-important question, what makes these manuscripts sparkle and glitter? These are useful questions for any admirer of manuscripts, from an absolute novice to the most knowledgeable scholars. These questions particularly interest paleographers like our recent guest, Mark Smith, and specialists in the conservation and repair of manuscripts, which are often worn from use and age. Today, I'll focus on the first set of questions concerning the definition of manuscripts as well as their organization and production. This overview of manuscript production will hold true for most of Latin Europe from the 12th through the 16th century. Manuscripts and the recording of information was practiced well before the 10th century, but manuscript culture seems to have really picked up around that time. Catholic monasteries during the Middle Ages were centers of learning and the transmission of knowledge. Thus, in this early period of production, manuscripts were made mostly in the monastic scriptorium until around the year 1230, and afterward this type of manuscript production was mostly seen in urban commercial centers, lasting well into the 16th century. So, to begin with the basics, the word manuscript comes from the Latin manuscriptus, meaning text written by hand. This is the fundamental difference between manuscripts and later printed books. The manuscript is a laboriously copied, entirely handmade object filled with individual personality from its scribe. The fundamental building block of a manuscript book is the bifolium, a rectangular sheet of parchment or paper folded in half across the longer side. A folio, one half of a bifolium, has two sides which we call the recto and the verso. In printed books, you might be more familiar with these as something that we call today pages. <laughs> Even ebooks and PDFs have retained this term, although digital reading loses the visual comparative benefit and tactile character of technology like printed books and manuscripts. Choirs, or gatherings, are formed when those folded by folia are placed one inside another like a stack of V-shapes. Usually four or six bifolia are stacked in northern Europe, and often five in the south. Each choir has twice the number of folios and four times the number of pages as it has bifolia, since each folded bifolia has four different surfaces. The choirs are sewn in sequence on thongs to form a codex or book. If, like me, you've ever read and loved a printed book so much that you've literally worn the covers off, you'll notice that printed books have choirs just like manuscripts. 
We won't discuss the complexity of the sewing elements of bookbinding today, but we will certainly touch on that in future episodes. With all these loose bifolia floating around the manuscript workshop, how did scribes ensure that a book was actually bound in the correct order? Well, scribes used different methods to keep the book in order while it was unbound. An important development for this was the inclusion of something called a catchword. A catchword is a word placed at the foot of a folio that's meant to be bound along with the other bifolia in a book. This word anticipates the first word of the following choir. Thus, bookbinders simply needed to match each catchword to the first word of the first folio on the following choir, and they could be sure that their manuscripts were in order. So catchwords are found at the end of choirs in Western manuscripts as early as the year 1000, and they were in widespread use by the 12th century because they were so useful. In addition, in the 13th century, the practice began of numbering individual bifolia, kind of complicating the catchword, often with a letter of the alphabet to designate the choir and an Arabic numeral for the leaf, which would read something like this, A1, A2, A3, etc., with the following choir labeled B1, B2, B3, and so forth. Individual choirs of the book were also sometimes numbered in Roman numerals, especially in the early Middle Ages, and usually in the lower outer margin of the last page. Who exactly were these women and men who so laboriously wrote out these texts? As I mentioned at the top of the episode, there are two major contexts for production of manuscripts, the monastery and the city. In the monastery, the entire work of making the manuscript was often carried out by the scribe. Scribes were usually men, although books were of course produced in convents by women as well. A study begun in 2014 provided some interesting evidence of women's role in book production, and specifically in painting illuminated manuscripts. A blue pigment was detected in the dental calculus of a woman associated with a medieval church and monastery complex at the site of Dalheim in Germany. I'll discuss that more, though, in part two of this series on manuscript production. So. These monastic scribes cut and folded parchment pieces to the dimensions of the page they desired. Each scribe would then prick holes down the sides of the open bifolium, probably several bifolia at a time stacked using an awl or possibly a spiked wheel. They would then line up a ruler on the parallel rows of pricked holes on each side of the open bifolium and rule the pages to produce the layout for the text. In the growing cities of the 12th and later centuries, books were made commercially by what we might call free-range artisans who worked not in a monastic context for God, but who worked instead for profit. In the 13th century, Paris was the first city to have a large commercial trade of manuscripts, with manuscript book producers commissioned to make specific books for particular people. Paris had a large enough population of wealthy, literate persons to support the livelihood of people producing manuscripts. This medieval era marks the shift in manuscript production from monks in monasteries to booksellers and scribes living and making their work in cities. Commercial production was highly specialized, with different craftspeople doing the work of scribe, illuminator, decorator, and binder. 
we might think of this as something almost approaching a streamlined assembly of workers, with each performing the role they excelled in. This streamlined approach to manuscript production ensured that the most ambitious and skilled commercial workers achieved an intensely refined quality. The training of parish priests and the emergence of the university in the 13th century required an effective method of making multiple copies from a single exemplar manuscript. University stationers had the most popular text available in pescias, literally pieces, or unbound choirs that could be rented cheaply and copied one after the other. Individuals, like students, would rent them section by section to copy out. So under this system, a large number of copiers, working simultaneously, could produce a copy in a significantly shorter amount of time than a single person working alone. As the professions, law, theology, and medicine took form in the 13th century, each developed its particular vocabulary and special abbreviations for them. This is actually really important for us today because there were many different features that emerged from these specializations, but the various finding devices made necessary by the length and density of legal and theological works in particular are perhaps the most significant in the history of the book. Some of these tools are things we now take for granted on the page. Punctuation, like the question mark and paragraph marks and indents. There was also the alternation of colors like red and blue for majuscule letters to catch the eye, and the systematic addition of running headlines with the author or title on the left and the book and chapter number on the right. Other devices are more ambitious. This period saw the development of tables of contents and, by 1230, alphabetical subject indexes enabling the reader to search through a work for every appearance of a word. By 1300, virtually every major work of the Church Fathers was provided with an alphabetical subject index. In addition, freestanding alphabetical reference tools appeared in the 13th century, most impressive among them being the alphabetically arranged concordance to the words in the Bible. The concordance was a freestanding text, an alphabetical list of the important words present in a text usually with citations indicating the passages in which those words are found. The appearance of the orders of mendicant frères, the Franciscans who were confirmed in 1209 and the Dominicans in 1216, profoundly affected the content and shape of the Bible. With its ordinary gloss, a complete Bible often filled 21 or 22 volumes, rather impractical for itinerant missionaries. But by around 1230, one-volume portable Bibles were being copied in Paris, possibly originally associated with the Dominicans of Saint-Jacques in Paris. That involved both textual and physical changes. For example, less text, smaller script, and thinner parchment. In the course of the 13th century, handbooks such as confessionals, penitentials, and collections of modern sermons, as well as works to help in the compilation of sermons, such as the collections of biblical distinctions, which listed the figurative meanings of words in the Bible. So again, these all-important lists that are developing and aiding in the production of manuscripts came into being. 
It is often assumed that the invention of printing around 1455 by Gutenberg brought the era of the manuscript book to a close. This may be correct in the very long run, but in the middle of the 15th century, the printing press actually added extensively to the longevity of the profession of both scribes and illuminators. Printing in two colors was not economically feasible until near the end of the century, so therefore rubrics and titles had to be added by hand to the leaves of the some 50 to 100 copies in the print run of each book, or else they had to be omitted. Fortunately, most of the problems in the layout, construction, publication, and sale of books had been resolved in Europe's manuscript era, to the degree that early printed books were made to look just like manuscripts, their type fonts cut to imitate the appearance of the various schools of scripts. German Fraktur, a font that you might even recognize today as the Gothic tattoo font that is so popular, and Humanist Script, which has inspired numerous fonts today, including Times New Roman and Garamond, were among some of the most popular scripts co-opted in early typeface printing. As for providing continued work for illuminators, the practical and affordable printing of images in color was not achieved until the 20th century. Manuscript production in the Middle Ages was a diverse, vivacious, and innovative field. Early in the medieval era, we see multiple monk scribes collaborating within one volume, even sharing their work within a single gathering. By the later Middle Ages, commercial urban production was in full swing, responding in part to the growing needs of students and mendicant preachers. In this later period, students, who were often keen to earn a little bit of extra pocket money, transcribed work for others, and owners, perhaps also to save money, wrote out less expensive books for their own use. So here we can really see the diversity of manuscript production and also how collaborative manuscripts were. There was a revival of the monastic scriptorium in the 15th century when the copying of books played an important role in the reformist Devotio Moderna movement and in certain nunneries that specialized in hybrid productions of printed and painted incunabula, of which I'm particularly fond. The medieval manuscript was an important technology and often a glittering, rapturous work of art. In two weeks, we will discuss the material side of manuscript production, returning to the questions raised by the blue-toothed woman, the fabrication of parchment, and much more in part two of manuscript production, where we focus on the illumination side. Next week, our founder, Sandra Hindman, will celebrate 30 years of Les Enlumineurs with a discussion of her favorite catalogs. It's been wonderful to discuss the basics of manuscript production and organization with you. But remember, this is just the tip of the iceberg. To find out more about manuscripts and their production, you can find us on social media at Les Lumières. Visit our website or order one of our many catalogs. You can also find us in person at the New York Antiquarian Book Fair from September 9th to September 12th. Thanks for listening.